With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome back into another episode of The Hard Foul. I'm your host, Pearson Fowler, and with me, as always, from GamecockCentral.com, beat writer extraordinaire, Colin Taylor, freshly moved into a new home, a little bit closer to me, although, Colin, you and I are still social distancing we haven't done a show together in a very long time and with each passing episode each passing weeks it gets a little more sad but i think if we want to be optimistic about it we can say that we're getting closer to being back in the same studio together and hopefully talking about actual south carolina basketball games uh, or you know off season or something uh here pretty soon we're getting closer it feels like you know a, a small eternity that it's been but we're we're getting closer to something right you would hope i mean <laughs> you would hope that all this time has led towards getting closer to football basketball wedding whatever you want to think so let's um let's keep praying and hoping that you're right and i'm my optimism is is just as high as yours is how about that let's let's say that for now and i like talking to you because it puts everything in perspective because i'm sitting here thinking about basketball and football and you have a wedding that is supposed to be in october and you're probably thinking about that um above all else so that's a a good reminder that uh i should should be thankful that i don't have that hanging in the balance but it's not hanging in the balance it's gonna happen it's gonna be great if it makes you feel any better i'm going to a wedding in like three or four weeks sometime in the middle of august so if there's going to be a wedding in august it's going to go off without a hitch then y'all will be totally fine in october um also once we get to october uh the basketball season usually starts right around the end of october beginning of november so if everything goes well with your wedding which it will and which it should then that means everything will probably be on schedule for basketball hopefully fingers crossed and as we record this tuesday morning july 21st uh colin i believe this is the first day that the South Carolina men's basketball players can begin voluntary workouts after spending last week and this past week and arriving to campus. Is that right? Yep. So they got back in um, Sunday, went through all their testing, and then on-court stuff will start today, Tuesday. Um, so getting closer. It's starting to feel a little bit more like a little bit more like normal, but with football and basketballs back in and doing their things. It's funny. I mean, it makes sense, but there's been something of a celebration. I remember when all the football players first recorded, uh, reported to campus in the beginning of June. It was like, all right, here we go. Like, this is happening. It's football. And gave us an opportunity to talk a little bit about football. And in all honesty, you know, around here, it's football first. And then, you know, basketball kind of once the football season ends or, you know, is effectively over as it was by the time basketball season started um, last year, at least based on where the football team was. But uh, this is the first time that I remember talking, you know, not only here on this podcast, but also, you know, on, on my local show on 107.5 The Game, talking about basketball players just reporting to campus and covering it sort of like we cover football. But, uh, again, part of it's just the relief and the fact that guys are back on campus now and starting workouts. Um, I, I mean, it's a good thing. Yeah, I think there's a very there's a very realistic scenario, you know, a month ago where this wouldn't have happened. And you mentioned that it was already pushed back a couple of weeks, but uh, you look around the country and there are a lot of places that have shut down voluntary workouts for, for fall sports and for the football team. And, you know, I, I imagine at those places the basketball team hasn't even gotten on campus yet. But part of what this says to me, um, again, even though they're two weeks behind, is that everything that the football team has done in the last six weeks or so has gone well enough that they felt comfortable going forward with bringing the basketball team back around a normal time. Yeah, I mean, this is this is big. Um, this is something that feels like forever since we've gotten a chance to really talk about real basketball um, and and not transfers or additions or recruiting. And um, it's welcomed, and it's getting these guys back. I talked to Frank um, last week, and it was just about getting back to some sense of normalcy. And you got to remember, these guys were. I mean, they got back to campus after Nashville and um, 
got sent on their merry way, not knowing when the next time they were going to come back was. And now they're coming back with a sense of normalcy, and that's kind of been Frank's, you know, harping point is that, listen, we're going to get on court work. That's not the worry. It's just about getting these guys back to where they feel comfortable back in a situation where we can help monitor them and, and put them in a bubble and give them access to really good health care um, to keep them safe, to keep them healthy. And um, I just think it's a win kind of all the way around and it gives us something to talk about. It gives um, the coaches something to do and, and something to focus on instead of probably going crazy at their houses. And um, like I am and like probably all of us are, um, but this is this is a good thing. This is a good thing, and I'm really excited to see how all of this shakes out and any potential positive or negative ramifications from having um, five or six sports on campus all at once. I imagine making this work for basketball will be a little bit easier than football. Just you know, purely based on the numbers game you're you're dealing with, probably you know what all total 25 people. You have the 15 guys on the roster plus four coaches, plus whatever associated training staff. So it's, it's a significantly smaller number than you're talking about with the football team. But what do you know about the protocols that have been put in place for the voluntary workouts and how similar is it to what the football program is doing? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty identical. Um, I don't know how many pods they're going to do, but, I mean, obviously they work in stages. They have different staggered weight room times. That way um, you're not having more than – a couple guys in the weight room at a time, the way football is doing it, they're scrubbing things down. They're, they're only getting, I think, eight hours on court time, so they're staggering those. And um, It's pretty similar to football and how they're working it, um, just because it's university-wide protocol. And, you know, if someone does test positive, um, I don't think USC is going to release those numbers. But um, they quarantine, and they want to make sure that if someone does get it um, based off the pod system, they're not infecting you know, 25 other people, you know, they're only exposing themselves maybe three or four or five uh, instead. So um, it looks really, really, that's a really long-winded answer to say it looks really, really similar to what football do. Well, yeah, I, I guess the biggest uh, question, people. yeah, no, that, that makes sense. It's not surprising. And I guess that probably just, I mean, it's probably a university policy as much as anything else. But I guess the, the big curiosity for me was what it was going to look like in terms of the pods. Again, obviously it makes sense to do pods, for the football team because you can't have 85 guys in the weight room at the same time working out and, you know, sweating and all of those kinds of things. But I didn't know if, if there would be any sort of exception made for basketball or even not exception, if it wouldn't necessarily be uh, part of the protocol there. But um, again, that does make sense. And, and right now it is just voluntary workouts uh, just so that other people know. And Colin, I promise you this will not be the last time I ask because I'm terrible with remembering dates. Uh, but as we look ahead, Today is the start of voluntary workouts again, Tuesday, July 21st. What's the next sort of deadline and when can the coaches be a little more hands-on uh, and when does the, I guess sort of the, uh, the preseason more formally start? I want to say the preseason starts in October. I know, I don't think I have a steadfast date, but I know that on-court stuff is allowed to start on July 20th. Um, it was just a matter and it can go for, I think eight weeks or until the first of school. Um, which is middle of August for South Carolina. Um, so I think that once they get that, they can do some more workouts when school starts. And I think the preseason usually starts um, into September, beginning of October uh, for college basketball. So it's a lot of just workouts until then and, and no like meetings, Zoom calls, you know, the, the kinds of playbook kinds of things that the football teams have been doing. It's just kind of workouts until then. Yeah, and I think that the on-court stuff involves a little bit of, of installation, too. Um, so September 15th, um, student-athletes can begin out-of-season work, uh, which is pretty much the same thing as the summer workouts, um, just obviously closer to preseason camp. Um, and then they kind of figure things out from there. And then the, the training camp-style stuff uh, usually starts about a month before the season, so um, beginning of October-ish. Well, this is going to be as important an offseason and as important a training camp. And again, we're uh, still a little ways away, a couple months away from, you know, training camp starting. So obviously we'll have plenty of time to discuss it. But there's a lot that has to shake out this season, especially uh, with A.J. Lawson coming back. He did return to campus. He reported that middle of last week. Not a huge surprise. You had sort of predict that. And he's still in the NBA draft. But he's back on campus, which is good for Carolina. Although, as you and I, as we'll do in just a second, try to look forward to what this means for different lineups for Carolina. It's great because they have a lot of possibilities, but um, 
you know, in some ways it makes things more complicated, but in, in a very good way. But A.J. Lawson still around and expected, I think, to be part of the team still this fall. Yeah, I mean, I 100% anticipate him being part of the team and um, absolutely think that, you know, he'll be here for his junior season. Obviously, um, things can change. Um, you never know. All it takes is one or two teams to say, hey, if you're there at X pick, we're going to take you and he stays or um, there's still a lot of unknown there. But right now I'm anticipating him being back uh, and we'll see from there. But if he comes back, I mean, we talked about it before, just how huge of a boost that would be to South Carolina in terms of um, keeping, maintaining some consistency and not having to scramble to a, a scholarship in uh, July or August. Mm-hmm. All right. So, I mean, you laid out one scenario right there, and that obviously seems like the most likely is the team just contacting him and saying, hey, you know, we, we really like your upside. We, we like what you think you can be for our team. You know, come play for us whatever, we're going to take you with a 58th pick of the draft or, you know, whatever the case may be. But short of that, do you foresee anything else pushing AJ towards staying in the draft? And and I, I guess to not really further complicate the question, but just to maybe give you a theory of mine, uh, because the draft is so close to the start of the basketball season, um, again, initially I thought maybe it's less likely that he will leave because he's going to be more invested by virtue of going through the entire offseason and preseason essentially with Carolina but on the other hand it could happen at the point in the in the preseason where you know maybe seventh woods and Jermaine Cousinard have just earned that starting backcourt do you get the sense that AJ would be okay with that or is there or is there the expectation that he's going to come back and you know if not be the guy at least be a firm starter he's going to be in I mean he's going to get his minutes um, you don't not give AJ Lawson his minutes. I don't think that's going to have anything to do with it. I think that um, he's going in anticipating the fact that he's going to start and he's going to play a lot, and I, I would anticipate that as well. And um, Yeah, I think, too, the, the deadline, August 3rd, you still don't know what a rotation is going to look like. You're still two months from the season before even preseason stuff. So um, at that point, even if he, you know, things do go weirdly sideways, which I don't see him going, um, mm-hmm. he wouldn't know anything. So um, I think that this is just a decision based off of him wanting to be drafted, um, him understanding where he is on that board and, and making a decision based off that, which leads me to believe um, in the things we're hearing that, that Lawson is um, likely to be back next season. Like I said, mm-hmm. nothing settled on stone, but that's kind of the way it's been trending now for a while. I'm with you in that. You no, know, he's going to get his minutes, and he's good, and he deserves them, and all those things. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I would be a little bit less surprised than you if he's not starting at the beginning of the season. Uh, do, do you just not think that's realistic at all, based on experience? Or, uh, I mean, how do you think about that? Because I, I think, I mean, Jermaine Cousinard's the starting point guard. The two, uh, you know, fifty-fifty maybe between, or maybe sixty-forty. AJ Lawson and Seventh Woods, but you know, Seventh Woods is a guy that's. It's played a lot of basketball. It's played a lot of winning basketball, obviously, up in North Carolina. Um, you know, being a local product, being a very good basketball player in his own right, I could absolutely see him winning that role. And then I guess there's a scenario where maybe you just bump AJ to the three um, and have Keyshawn Bryant coming off the bench. But, uh, again, there, there feel like more than five guys that deserve to be starting on this team, and I, I just am wondering who the odd man out is going to be. Yeah, I think that's the biggest question for South Carolina this fall is um, trying to answer that. I mean, you look at you know, Jermaine Cousin can play the point, but if they want to move him back to his natural position at the, the shooting guard, the two spot, then you could put seventh woods at your point. And then AJ could slide to the three. And then you have Justin Minaya, Wilden, Zavette, Keyshawn Bryant that are battling for three, or two, three guys for two spots. Or if you want to put Kusnard at the, at the one, and then have AJ at the two, Keyshawn at the three, Manaya at the four, Lebec Frank at the um, at the five, and then have Seventh Woods coming off the bench. You can do that. I mean, it's one of those things where you have so many good options for you, and that's why I think a lot of people are high on South Carolina next year um, because you have legitimately six or seven guys that not only have the talent to be a starter but deserve a starter spot just because they played really, really well over the course of two or three years at Carolina. So mm-hmm. um, I'm glad that I do not have to make those decisions <laughs> right. because, I mean, if, if I'm if I'm building a lineup, I look 
you know, I think my dream lineup, just based off the stuff that I've watched and um, my personal preferences, you keep Kustar at the one, and then you have Lawson, Bryant, Manaya, and Levesque at center, and then you bring Seventh Woodson off the bench as like a guy that can get to the rim and do a lot of different things. So mm-hmm. um, it's going to be fun. I think that that's kind of the biggest question this off season. Like, okay, who who does number one get the center spot? But then how do you settle the backcourt? And where do you play A.J. Lawson and Jermaine Kusnard, who, you know, Kusnard had to play out of position last year. And then A.J. could play the wing or the two, and um should be a lot of fun to watch. I, I like that. That's uh that's better than what I had penciled in, and, and more than, like, any one specific thing. I just kind of thought about all, the, all the, the variables, all the different lineups. And you and I had sort of played this out, I guess we did at the end of last season, and now that we have a more concrete idea of what the roster looks like, uh, it's – I mean, it's just as flexible as we thought, and I I, I threw this out to uh, maybe Jay, or maybe I threw it out to you the other day. I don't know, but the idea of Carolina going, you know, ultra small is obviously appealing because we we see a lot of that, especially in the NBA, spreading the floor, having a lot of guys that can shoot threes. But a, a lineup of Jermaine Cousinard, Seventh Woods, AJ Lawson, Keyshawn Bryant at the four, and Justin Minaya at the five, with no one on your no one on the court that's bigger than six seven. All of those guys, I mean, the worst three-point shooter, I mean, I guess I, I shouldn't say all those guys can shoot threes because Keyshawn Bryant cannot, um, but does sort of space the floor because if you give him a runway, you're going to you know, end up on SportsCenter that night and on the wrong end of a highlight. So that gives you so much. But Carolina, you know, not only can play like a regular lineup, but they could even go extra ginormous jumbo if they want to play with Jermaine at point, AJ at two, you can put, you know, Justin Minaya at the three, Jalen McCreary at the four is sort of your versatile wing defen- uh, defender, and then, you know, like you said, Levesque or Frank at five. Um, I have no idea. Again, th- it'll probably end up being matchup dependent, uh, which is nice for Carolina, although I, I want to talk about the other side of that in just a second. But uh, if with, with all those on the table, plus the one that you mentioned, what do you think will be Carolina's default this year? I think the default... Again, we're talking about this, what, three months out, two months, you know, whatever it is when the season starting four months out. I, I think you you need – I take a look at this and say, all right, who are the guys that absolutely have to be on the court for South Carolina? Jermaine Kuznar obviously has to be on the court for you to start. Um, Justin Minaya absolutely has to be on the court for you to start. A.J. Lawson more than likely needs to be on the court for you to start. Um, and then you kind of plug in after that. Um, do you put if I if it's me, I think the default's going to be Kusnard, Lawson, Bryant, Manaya, Levesque. Um, just because Levesque gives you a little bit more rim protection that Frank loves so much. Some athleticism at the five, um, and then Seventh Woods is your sixth man off the bench, um, where you can bump you know, if you need to take Lawson out, you bump Kusnard to the two, and then Seventh Woods takes over at the point. Um, but, yeah, I think – I mean, the biggest wild card here is obviously Seventh Woods. I mean, if you really want to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, because if he comes in and doesn't play well, then it's an easy decision for the coaching staff. Um, and then if he comes in and absolutely lights the world on fire, then it's – you know, you have a decision to make at that point. Do you take Lawson out? Do you take Bryant out or somebody along those lines to Seventh Woods can get a spot in the lineup? Um those are all questions that need to be answered. Uh, I think the default right now, uh, independent of what Seventh Woods does, is Kusnard, Lawson, Bryant, Makaya, and Zach, um, with a lot, a lot of permutations to come off of that. You're right. That is the big question, and and I wonder. And again, we we, we talked a little bit about Seventh, obviously, when he officially transferred into South Carolina, and I guess the coaching staff doesn't really have anything else to go on between when we talked about it then and now, because today is the first day of those voluntary workouts. But it seems to me like it's easier to make that transition in college basketball, especially as uh, as a graduate transfer, than it is, you know, say, a quarterback or a wide receiver in football. You know, the, the playbooks aren't as big. You're not having to, to adjust as much in terms of the, the language, you know, scheme and different things like that. Um, but with all that being said, you know, how, how, mu- how much do you expect this offseason to mean – for seventh, uh, because again, we know what kind of basketball player he is based on the conversations you've had with the coaching staff and what you know about those kinds of transitions. Like, what do you expect come the beginning of the season? Yeah, um, 
So they really had to work on his jump shot. That was something that needed a lot of work when he came in to South Carolina. And um, the progress has been good on that. Um, he understands defensive concepts really, really well. Um, so I think that he's going to be a big boost um, on your perimeter defense. And he's a guy that I mean, you saw last year, South Carolina struggled to get to the rim sometimes, struggle with aggression. That's not the case with seven. That's a guy that understands how to get to the rim, how to make plays. And he's a guy that can just kind of create, whether that's for himself, whether that's for other teammates, whoever. And I think that's going to be a big, big thing for South Carolina. Um, if he if he can do that and just be a guy that comes in, runs a good point, plays phenomenal defense and, and can get to the rim, there's going to be a spot for you on the team. Um, and that's kind of how I think the coaching staff is going to use him at least early on um, as a guy that can kind of probably come off the bench depending on how he does um, and just kind of come in there, um, annoy the ever-loving hell out of the opposing offense, uh, the ball handles are there, and then um, get to the rim and attack so the face as a point guard on the offensive end of the court. What does this do for Trey Hannibal? How does this alter his role? Probably not a lot. I think, I mean, Hannibal played 10 minutes last year in, in SEC play. I'm looking it up now. But um, I think it stays pretty much the same. I think it gives him another year to adjust. And, yeah, he played 12 minutes, 12.7 minutes per game last year. Um, I think that's going to be pretty much the same. I think that um, he's going to – play some roles he's going to come in be a defensive guy and there are lineups in there where I can see seventh and Trey playing on the court at the same time mm. just because of how you know defensive minded they are if you need to stop you put those two guys out there and it causes some 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 gunk out there so I think you're going to see a similar role um, as Hannibal still tries to adjust to the college game and get used to um, playing in Frank Martin's scheme both offensively and defensively that makes sense just, again, using him kind of a, in that spot duty kind of role because that's essentially what he was doing last year. But it, it seems like pretty much every podcast we did during the season was, yep, you know, Trey Hannibal played 11 minutes tonight, but he probably should have played more, probably should have played more. It always felt like that. Um, and, again, it's hard in those situations because just, to, just because a guy is productive in somewhat limited minutes, um, oftentimes against, you know, a, a backup point guard or a backup backcourt, it, you can't just necessarily say, all right, this guy's ready to play, you know, 28 minutes a game against starters, you know, every couple days in the SEC. Um, but uh, what, what what is fair, and again, like his role changes now, but what's fair to expect from him going from his freshman year to his sophomore year? Yeah, I think that you want to see a jump in understanding the offense um, and the defensive schemes. I mean, Hannibal um, was a really good high school player, but when you're a really good high school player on a high school team that's, doesn't have other at the time Division One guys, SEC guys. Um, it's a lot of one v five instead of five v five. So Hannibal got sucked into that hero ball mentality a little bit, um, and it takes a while to break that when you spent three years of high school or two years of high school playing that style. So um, he's going to need to learn. If you see him take an uptick and just facilitating and. Um, just understanding how to play in Frank Martin's offense, I think that's going to be big. And then his jump shot. Uh, he needs to work on being able to score from all three levels. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's obviously an athletic powder keg of a person, but he needs to be able to, to hit from the mid-range consistently. And if he can develop somewhat of a three-point shot, then you have to, you can draw the defense out. It's based on the floor a little bit better. So if you see that, um, that kind of Trey Hannibal, then – things will – he'll he'll see some more minutes um, and probably see his role increase a little bit um, this season, especially for his junior year. The two uh, swing guys, I guess, the, the two guys that are probably going to be taking most of the wing minutes for South Carolina, and, you know, some combination of, of Brian and Mania play in the three and the four. Both of those guys had a lot of injury questions last year. Brian obviously getting hurt in the preseason, missing the early part of the season, coming back, never really looking like himself. And then Mania obviously got hurt down the stretch – was able to come back at the end of the season. Uh, I guess Bryant is, is healthy because he was healthy for all of last season. It's just a matter of him sort of getting back. So we'll, we'll come back to Bryant. But what do you know about Manaya? Is he full go as of today? Yeah. Yeah, he was um, ready to go. 
he's been training all off season. He's looked good doing I've seen some videos of him doing that. And um, yeah, his thumb, whatever wrist, whatever it was, fully ready to go, good, healthy, um, and be full steam ahead. And what about Bryant? Um, again, last year, the injury in the beginning of the season really throws everything off because not, not only do you lose, I guess, sort of the fitness that you had worked up to to get to you know, the, the, the preseason and the beginning of the season, but you're then working on getting back into shape, getting back to the point where you're comfortable, where you trust your leg. You're having to do that in games, um, and, and games that matter by and large by the time that Keyshawn Bryant got back. So that that's a really, really tough adjustment, but – what we saw last year, I, I think overall, just as a body of work in terms of his productivity, was disappointing relative to the expectations for him coming into the season. So what what has changed about his approach, or, or is it just going to be a matter of he needed more time to get healthy and to feel comfortable, and you know this offseason should provide him the opportunity to to kind of fully, fully rehab and fully get back to that? Yeah, that, I mean, I think that you saw, you saw it at the end of last season, I think of his last five games, three were double-doubles, and he nearly averaged a double-double um, his last five games. So that's kind of the Keyshawn Bryant that we were expecting all of last season. Um, it just never came to be. And You saw it at the end of the year. You saw him start to trust his knee a little bit more, start to – I mean, he obviously didn't have the concussion to deal with. And um, it, it started a round in the form for what South Carolina – for, for what Bryant could be for South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you continue to build on that, then he's going to be really, really good. Um, he's going to be a huge piece to the South Carolina team, whether that's starting, whether that's on the bench, whether that's however the hell they want to use him, he's going to be amazing. I mean, he's going to be a, a key piece. If he could stay healthy and do what he did last year, where it was getting to the rim, where it was rebounding, where it was effort plays, and um, that's going to be huge for what South Carolina wants to do this year. And we just need to see more of him on SportsCenter. There was a ton of that his freshman year, and it felt like he he left he left a couple at the rim. He got blocked a couple of times. Now there, you know, a lot of good big men, a lot of good defensive big men, especially in the SEC. It felt like last year, so uh, you know you don't necessarily hold that against him. And when you go for as many ferocious dunks as he does, you're going to miss a couple. But I, I still, I was still expecting him to flush every single one. But by the end of the season, it was like, man, he. He kind of has missed a lot of these this year, so hopefully he's back to a point where he can where he can finish a lot more of those this year. Because other than like Jermaine Cousinard, like three quarter court buzzer beater against Kentucky, I think the most exciting Carolina basketball play the last couple of years has just been, uh oh, they left Keyshawn Bryant open, boom, you know? Yeah, I mean. There are very few things in this life that I enjoy more than watching Keyshawn Bryant take off from like the three-point line and drive baseline and then see someone slide into the lane to try to block it because we all know how it's going to go. Mm-hmm. But they still try to jump, and then Keyshawn Bryant decides to end their life. Yep. And it's fun for everybody involved. It's great. We need more of that. We need him to get back yeah. to that. So for a lot of reasons, hoping that Keyshawn is, is fully healthy and, and trusting his body and trusting his leg again and uh, – like I said, he he has a full off season now. Let's just cross our fingers, knock on wood, whatever we need to do, because that is, like you said, going to be a a real kind of pivot point for Carolina this year as they try to put together an amazing amount of uh, just varied and hopefully productive lineups. Uh, since we're just kind of going position group by position group here, the big men. You mentioned McCreary again as someone that's kind of uh, you know he played a little, a little five I guess last year, probably more of a four, um, more of a you know, defensive kind of guy, I would say just at this point in his career because his offensive game is so unrefined and he's so athletic, he can offer you so many different things defensively. Um, although he did have a really good stretch there. I felt like he was, you know, two of two or three of three in just about every game. So good cleaning up around the basket. But mostly, I, I want to talk about Levesque. I want to talk about Frank and then the two incoming freshmen. Um, obviously, you know, Levesque started for most of the year last year. He's a good, solid, reliable five somebody that Frank Martin likes to sort of be the type of player, at least that Frank Martin likes to see anchoring his back line while Frank offers you a little more offense. And again, if you want to throw McCreary in there as like a real small ball five, you can do it. But where does this leave the two incoming freshman bigs? Yeah. Um, probably. I don't think they'll start. Um, I think they will be rotational guys. If, if they see consistent minutes um, and that's not a knock on their talent. That's just a, they got three, four guys ahead of them. Um, I think Levesque and Frank are two, the two obvious candidates to start at center. 
Um, I'd probably give the edge to Frank or not Frank Levesque, um, just because, like I said, the rim protection, um, the just kind of raw athleticism he has, and Frank off the bench is a guy that can come in and, and give you some really, really, really good offense. Um, but as for the – and then McCreary is obviously going to be a four um, and rotating in and out of that with, with Manaya and Frank and probably some other guys. So um, if we're talking about the two freshmen, I think Pat Ariel is probably the closest to ready um, just because of his body type. Um, plays a little bit more in offense that is similar to South Carolina's. Uh, needs to play a little bit more back to the basket. And um, I think Benson's good. I think he just is a little raw. Um, I think that he's going to take a year. Um, he'll play a little bit probably, but he'll take a year to really get refined and get his body right. That's a big thing for him. Um, if he can get his body right and, and grasp the offense and, and do that, then he has a chance because he's six foot seven with like a seven foot one wingspan. I mean, they don't make people like that usually. So um, that the, the, there's things there that just you can't teach. So. He's got some talent. It's just about getting his body right. And I think if we're going to put, you know, of the two freshmen, I would definitely say Uriel's probably the closest to getting minutes early um, in this 2020-2021 season. But essentially just a redshirt year for both of those guys? Yeah, I don't think – I mean, redshirt maybe, maybe not, but it's just going to be one of those where um, they're probably not going to see as much time just because they don't have to. And I think that's just kind of a testament to the depth South, depth South Carolina has. Um, in their front court when you don't bring in freshmen and you don't have to rely, rely on them 20, 25 points a game. Right. Well, there we go. Uh, today, like I said, first day of voluntary workouts, players back on campus. That's, uh, I guess, our prediction for how we think this thing is going to play out in the very early going. But obviously, as training camp progresses and as we get a little bit closer to the middle of September and the actual preseason starts, uh, for the basketball team, we'll have obviously a, a clearer picture, especially of seventh and especially what that big man rotation for Carolina is going to look like because those are uh, kind of the, the big looming questions for me. Uh, before we get into uh, a couple of Frank Martin's social initiatives, obviously he's had an incredibly busy offseason getting surgery on was it his knee or ankle. I don't know why I can't remember that, but was his knee or ankle? Frank, yep. knee. Knee, okay. Yeah, getting knee surgery, getting COVID-19, and obviously being incredibly involved in the – fight for social justice around the country right now. We're going to get into a couple of the causes that uh, have been, I think, particularly important to him and that he's been particularly uh, involved in in the last couple of months. But before we do that, I want to do, gosh, Colin, it's amazing that we're doing this segment. I, I'm, I'm not used to ever having been able to do this segment at any point in my life, but a little bit of Gamecocks in the NBA because right now there are four, and all four of them are going to be participating in the Orlando restart which is uh, just about a week away it's a, it's a week from this coming thursday july 30th pj dozier sundarius thornwell brian bowen and chris silva are all going to be participating in the orlando restart uh, but colin before we dig into the specifics of these guys and sundarius thornwell's new contract i guess it was new last week i don't know if it's if that if that means it's still new if that uh, falls within the uh the statute of limitations on what defines new but i've had a lot of people in the last week or so, since I mentioned this, since you and I talked about this on my local show last week, pushing back on Brian Bowen being a Gamecock. Now, he was on the Gamecock roster. He did leave the NBA after most recently being affiliated with the college basketball program at the University of South Carolina. But he never did, in fact, play for the Gamecock. So it's easy for me to sit here and say, hey, you know what? It's cool. There are four Gamecocks in the NBA. Some people take issue with it. I imagine you're in my camp, though, where you're fine with counting Brian Bowen as a Gamecock in the NBA. Yep, I'm cool with it. He was on campus for a year. Um, they they market him. They talk about him. And he committed to South Carolina after – or transferred to South Carolina. So, you know what? We'll count him. We'll and he never played him. college basketball at all because he sat out the one year at Louisville, too. Correct. Yeah, so Louisville doesn't have any more of a legitimate claim to Bowen than South Carolina – but this is such an unusual scenario. I obviously can't think of anything like it in, in basketball or football because how often do you have a guy? I mean, it would only happen in basketball. It wouldn't happen in football anyway. But how often how often ever have you had a guy go to college and not play college and then leave college and then still be in the NBA? It's, it's so bizarre. It was at the time. Um, and, again, as I've had to reflect on it to try to justify my thinking that he's a Gamecock, I've just been 
mystified because it is just one of the most peculiar stories I can remember. Yeah, it's kind of like, I don't know how to describe it because obviously the NCAA probably was never going to allow him to play. And it's the weirdest because he went from McDonald's All-American to um, just a weird, like, I don't really know how to describe his career because it was really weird to begin with. And now he's an NBA player. And it's um, for recruiting purposes and marketing purposes, it is not bad to have a guy that you can claim as an NBA player on your on uh, in your program's history. Right. Well, that's the that's the important part is when Frank Martin and all of his assistant coaches go into other families' homes, they're just going to say, hey, look, we got four guys in the NBA right now. And if they push back, maybe you say, all right, fine. I, I don't think that would necessarily happen because I don't think that's how those recruiting calls go. But at the end of the day, you're saying, hey, you know, we got four guys in the NBA right now. And Kentucky can say that. And, you know, I'm sure a couple other teams in the SEC, I'm trying to think who off the top of my head, though, can say that. Um, that's that's a really, really good look for South Carolina. And that's not a pitch that Frank Martin and company are used to being able to make. That, that's not a pitch that any South Carolina basketball coach in the last 40 years is used to being able to make. And I, I think that just speaks to as much as like last season was disappointing and people are disappointed that Carolina hasn't made it back to the NCAA tournament since their final four run. I think that speaks to a, a level of consistency and productivity in the program that seems sustainable. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where South Carolina in the history of the program, I don't know has ever had four guys um, with NBA ties on the on it, ever at once. Um and then six, if you want to count Hassani Gravit and Dwayne Notice playing in the G League. So, um, you want to talk about the the job Frank Martin's done at South Carolina? That's it. I mean, when you have Sandarius, who's in an NBA team, Chris Silva, um, PJ Dozier, and Brian Bowen, Hassani Gravit. Most of these guys, though, weren't considered top 50 guys, all Americans, when they were coming to South Carolina, and then they developed into that. Mm-hmm. That's and that's huge for recruiting. Going into homes and saying, you know, look at what we did for Chris Silva. He went from uh, a fringe 150 guy to a guy that can that is on a multi-year deal at in the NBA with the Miami Heat. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's huge for recruiting. It's huge for a lot of reasons. And I mean, that's one of those where it's. You, that is one of the biggest ways to measure success in the Frank Martin era. And I think it speaks too to how good that final four team was. And everyone kind of talks about it as I've seen people mention as lightning in a bottle, but you know, it, it's really not when you look back on it. I mean, some Darius, Chris Silva, PJ Dozier, Hassani was a role player on that team. Dwayne notice all of those guys are playing professionally and playing professionally in America. Mm-hmm. So just kind of speaks to how good, He's been and the development's been um, at South Carolina over the last couple of years. Well, I was going to ask you as a follow-up, if given that and given that South Carolina has been able to produce a higher quality of player than, you know, over a short stretch than any period going back to, you know, whenever, you know, maybe the late 90s, if not, you know, the 70s or 60s or whenever Carolina used to be really good at basketball before that. But if, if given that, the last couple seasons have been even more of a disappointment, but I, I think you just identified something, which is just like, wow, you know, it, it was basically that final four team was incredible and, you know, not lightning in a bottle in that, you know, they shouldn't have done that or they overachieved you know, again, relative to their seed, you say they did, but again, you look back and say, well, that was actually, you know, certainly one of the most talented teams in the entire tournament that year, just based on the guys that went on to, to have professional careers, but maybe lightning in a bottle insofar as you had all those guys, you know, on, on the team at the same time. Um, because after that it was, I guess it was Silva and then it was Gravit and uh, Silva was a all defense guy and Gravit was a sixth man of the year. But other than that, you know, you lose PJ, you lose Sundarius, who was obviously an SEC player of the year. I, I guess it's just lightning in a bottle and that you got all those guys in sort of the, the perfect moment in their career, you know, a year after, Thornwell was gone, and I guess PJ was gone because he decided to go early. Um, you get Silva at a stage in his career when he's, I mean, he's young and he's raw, but he was a fantastic role player on that team. I don't know what, the third best player on that Final Four team? It was just, it was a perfect confluence of all those events. And and now you wonder, you, you look at the NBA talent 
uh, on this roster. Obviously, AJ is sort of there on the cusp. Um, otherwise, you know, maybe Jermaine Cousinard, someone that's, that's going to have the opportunity to have a cup of coffee in the NBA or, or certainly the G League at some point in his career. You look at the talent across the roster and you say, all right, like we're projecting forward. What, what's the next group of Cinderius PJ with role players like Dwayne and Chris and Hassani? It's, I mean, when you think about it, it might be this group. Um, you look at Jermaine and AJ, who both have pro potential, and then you look at the role players they have, and a Jalen McCreary, who um, we wrote a story yesterday where the guy was like, listen, he has a chance to be a professional player by the end of his career in South Carolina. And um, there's just – there's this, this roster they have now, I'm not comparing it to – that final four team per se, because I mean, that final four team is, is the stuff of legend, just how talented they were. But when you look at just the depth and the talent level of, of this 2020, 2021 team, there's a reason why the people around the program are so high on them because they have talent and they have a vocal leader in Jermaine Kusnard, who's as close to Cinderius Stonewall as they've had since then. Um, and that's, and I think that speaks volumes as to, to them being able to sustain and get back to it after the BB gun incident, after Rob Felder, after um, some transfers in the 2017 class. Um, that's, that's, it's huge for, for them getting back to where they think they can compete for NCAA tournament berths at South Carolina consistently um, with this group of talent. Um, interestingly, the most heralded guy from that Final Four team, Sundarius Thornwell, was the guy that made it four. South Carolina players in Orlando as he signed a contract with the New Orleans Pelicans and his his career in the NBA I mean he he's had one he's had one pretty continuously and pretty consistently since he left South Carolina but it's been a little bit journeyman obviously you know more end of the bench kinds of minutes um, he, he got some good minutes with the Clippers and and kind of spot work you know defensive assignments I remember there was there, there was a week or week and a half stretch where he was guarding um, again in sort of spot minutes you know 12 minutes a game or something like that but he was guarding Russell Westbrook, uh, James Harden, and LeBron James, and Doc Rivers are just like, go get him, and, you know, did a good job because that's what you know you're getting with Sandarius Thornwell and with a Frank Martin kind of player, but he never projected the same kind of NBA upside as some of those other guys, as PJ and as Chris. Um, but like I said, he was the guy that made it four, and the fact that he keeps sticking with teams I, I think reinforces something that, you know, people around here that covered Sandarius Thornwell and covered that Final Four run kind of knew, which is just that a guy that's going to work hard play good defense and as a high character guy he seems like he always seems like someone that that coaches and players are going to want in the locker room and I, I think that will that right there is enough to help him have a long NBA career he's not going to score 20,000 points but it seems like he, he will continue to land on teams and again in the case of the New Orleans Pelicans relevant teams yeah I mean and he does some of the stuff that is really hard to find consistently in the NBA which is defend uh, at a pretty high level at all three levels. Um, and then Sundarius has done that, did that at South Carolina. And I think that that's one of the biggest reasons why teams enjoy signing him and, and having him on a roster. Because he, even if he's only playing five minutes a game, those are five minutes where you're getting some pretty good defense and you're allowing starters to rest without too much of a dip in production. Mm -hmm. Now, we would be remiss if we didn't mention, you know, in, in the case of Sundarius Thornwell, and I guess probably in the case of Brian Bowen too, that some of this is circumstantial. Not that these guys wouldn't be on teams because, again, Sandarius Thornwell was on an NBA team this year. Brian Bowen was on the Pacers and, and, you know, playing spot work here and there. But players not being able to go to Orlando, contracting COVID-19, uh, you know, willingly holding themselves out has been part of the conversation. And I guess for Brian Bowen, the uncertain future of Victor Oladipo, the star of the Indiana Pacers, um, who's obviously in the backcourt there, who, I, you know, he, they'll, they'll give him the ball. He's the primary playmaker but he's you know more of a two but regardless opens up sort of a backcourt spot for Bowen who's been on a two-way contract this year but this is uh I mean this is what opportunity is you know it's not about I'm just the best guy so I'm gonna get it and you know even if it was the case that you know maybe the Pelicans would not have signed Sundarius Thornwell for the stretch run had the season played out as usual but opportunity presents itself and this is an opportunity I, I point to those two guys specifically because again Chris Silva's locked up a long-term contract uh PJ Dozier is a like a firm rotation player, you know, more than just kind of the spot minutes here and there. He's a real rotation player for a deep and talented Denver Nuggets roster. Um, but for Thornwell and for Bowen, this is a great opportunity. 
Oh, amazing opportunity. Um, just to show that they belong in the NBA, whether that's as a starter, whether that's as a role guy or a guy that's playing two and a half minutes, the NBA is the NBA. Um, and if they go out there and all of a sudden they're averaging six points, eight points, and then four rebounds a game in the bubble, then other teams can take notice. Um, and it could lead to a contract next year um, in the NBA and not just on a two-way deal. So, um this is huge if they can go out there and perform at a high level and then it parlays that into potentially a long career in the NBA. Now, the other two guys that I mentioned, again, Chris Silva, again, a, a pretty solid role player for the Miami Heat and someone that Eric Spolstra has just raved about. Um, and Miami, you know, I, I'm not a Miami fan. I watched a lot of Miami when LeBron was there, and yeah, I, I kind of just, you know, watch LeBron wherever he is because he's LeBron, and I want to watch the, you know, greatest player to ever do it. Um, but Watching the Heat after LeBron makes me wish that I were a Miami fan because, um, again, that would make it a little bit easier for me to pull for Chris Silva. But I'm just so enamored with their culture, and Chris Silva seems to embody that so completely. And it makes sense. We saw Michael Carrera you know, have an opportunity. He was on the Miami Heat Summer League team, I guess the summer right after he graduated from South Carolina because I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of crossover between what – what Miami does culturally and what Frank Martin likes to do at South Carolina culturally, again, just, you know, hard-nosed basketball, defense, discipline. I think they have, like, a system of routine body fat percentage checks just to make sure that players are staying in shape. And I, I think it was I think it was when Dwayne Wade got back from Chicago because he had that weird little dalliance in Chicago and then Cleveland and then eventually went back to Miami to finish his career, which is, you know, always how it should have been. But they were just like, yeah, Dwayne, you're fat. You're not playing until you get into better shape, which is um, amazing. But for Chris Silva, I, I don't think there's a better landing spot for him. Um, again, it's paid off with a long-term contract, and, and Eric Spolstra has spoken so glowingly of him. But I expect him to to be a part of the Miami Heat for for a long time to come, which is great because they're relevant. And Chris Silva is going to continue to be, um, you know, on a on a pretty good stage in the NBA. Yeah, I mean, you talk about when we talk about fit at South Carolina, it's so important. But the Heat take that to the next level um, in the NBA. And there's a certain toughness about them. There's a certain level of, I mean, just sheer grit about them that Chris still kind of exhibits. And you saw him take a, you know, a, a middling contract or just a two-way deal and then take advantage of the situation. It fits so well into that culture that now he's on a multi-year deal. Um, and that's something that, I mean, not a lot of people can say. I don't think if it was anybody other than Chris Silva, he wouldn't get that kind of deal. And um, you've seen a lot of parallels between the Miami Heat program and the NBA and South Carolina's program in the college level, just in terms of fit. And um, it's why Chris Silva's landed there. It's why Frank Martin's very close to that organization. It's why they recruited Anthony Carter's kid out of Miami, Devin Carter. Um, so obviously, Anthony's an assistant with the Miami Heat. Um, they just they have so much mutual respect for each other and so much um, similarities in terms of the program that that's why you see South Carolina people get opportunities there and potentially thrive there like Chris is doing. Miami has played 65 games. Chris Silva's played in 41 of them, averaging eight minutes, three points, three rebounds. Um, here's the other big number, two fouls. I mean, that's a lot for just uh, eight minutes a game, but also if you would ask me to predict – I would have said that he probably would have been averaging like 10 fouls per eight minutes. So uh, great job, Chris Silva. Um, but shooting 62% from the floor, uh, free throw percentage is uh, just a, a tick below um, 70%. But I, I wonder if he's a guy that, um, again, like the, the Miami roster is interesting because they have Jimmy Butler. And other than that, it's like a bunch of really good players. It's sort of the Chris Vernon approach of just like, make sure no one on your team sucks. Like everyone's at least pretty good. Um, but it, it seems like, you know, he, he's, he's an injury away or just, you know, a, a hot streak away from playing. Cause it's, it's not like the guys ahead of him are future hall of famers. It's just a lot of really good, solid role players, which, you know, I, I mean, has me at least excited for the NBA restart and to see uh, what Miami does. Cause he's always been in the mix and it, it, you, you just need a sliver of an opportunity. And Chris Silva does as good a job as, you know, anyone that I remember covering and taking advantage of that. Yeah. And I mean, one of my all time favorites to cover. And if we can start seeing Chris Silva play more minutes, I'm intrigued to see how many fouls he can commit. Um, right. Would love to see his per 100 on, <laughs> on fouls, which is probably not great. 
Um, but happy for him. I think he's got a long, long career in the NBA after his first deal uh, runs out with the Heat. Even though he, I guess, has spent maybe less time than any of those four in the NBA this year, he's the guy that always felt like he had the highest upside as a professional basketball player and I, I think has worked himself into more of a regular rotation than any of the other three guys. And that's P.J. Dozer, who's, uh, again, had a, a little bit of a journeyman career, played really well in the G League. He's been a part of the Oklahoma City organization. He's been a part of Boston, uh, the Celtics organization, and has finally stuck in Denver. Uh, again, sort of like Miami, a roster where you have Jokic at the top and then you have just a bunch of really good, solid strong role players but pj uh, only played 21 games this year but it's worked himself into an 11 minute per game i guess regular rotation he's averaging four points a game one and a half assist half a turnover so three to one assist to turnover ratio um and, and like i said is, is really doing a good job and they have i mean obviously they have jamal murray they have monte morris who's maybe the the best or most underrated backup point guard in the league so for pj to, to continue to to earn minutes and to earn more minutes uh, Michael Malone has spoken so glowingly of him. I, I think I think we're finally starting to see just a little bit. Again, when PJ was in college, I, I wasn't saying like, "Oh, this guy's going to be a multiple time All Star," but I was like, "This guy just feels like a pro player." And after a couple years in the G League, it feels like he's finally tapping into that. Oh, I agree. Um, and you saw it with him and with Silva, where it's like, okay, they you you're looking at him and saying, "All right, this these guys have the body for it. These guys have." you know, the, the talent, the athleticism, and it's kind of showing there. It took PJ a little bit longer to really latch on and, and start to kind of turn that corner. But, I mean, he had a phenomenal G League uh, season before that got shut down. And, I mean, he's good. There's a reason why he was in McDonald's All-American and helped South Carolina do a Final Four. And um, I think you're really starting to see that now that he's gotten comfortable and really retooled that jump shot a little bit um, for the NBA game. Yeah, he's shooting right at about 40% from the field. He's gotten his free throw percentage up. Uh, it's still 64%, and that's got to be a little bit higher for you know a, a long guard. You need to be able to score a little bit more efficiently than that. But it's better than in South Carolina where it feels like I, I, I pretty much remember him shooting like 10% from the free throw line um, you know, towards the end there, which was disappointing. But uh, the other fun part about watching P.J. this year, and I love the Nuggets because Jokic is probably my favorite player in the NBA right now, but if, if you're not a an avid NBA fan, do yourself a favor – Look up some PJ Dozier highlights because most of them are him, you know, running backdoor cuts and catching lobs from Jokic, which is um, it, it's fun to watch because uh, just like in your brain, if you're someone that's watched a lot of basketball, you're used to the guard throwing the alley oop to the center, but everything in Denver is backwards, and it's delightful because you have this you know big seven foot one banger throwing these like beautiful touch alley oop passes to guards that are just you know cutting like crazy off the ball, so it's a lot of fun. I, I think. I think that part of it has been good too, because it's not like PJ's just coming in with backup units and you know, kind of getting his own shot. He's he's really playing well within the offense, and I, I think that's a, a very democratic offense, so a good landing spot for a player like him that has the length, that has the size, and the vision, and the playmaking ability. Yeah, and I mean, he's got a chance to have another long career, um, and if he can land land on a team that already has some superstars or some good players on it where he doesn't have to be the guy and he could be you know, your fourth or fifth base player as a role guy. Then, I mean, that's a huge, huge benefit for him. And I think he's going to thrive in Denver. And um, I think they got a chance to make a pretty good run in the playoffs just because they have some, some talent. And I mean, they're one of those things where the, the sum is greater than some of the parts. Um, and I think that's going to be big, big, big for PJ. We'll keep checking in on these guys throughout the Orlando restart, which again starts a week from Thursday, nine days from right now, but uh, looking forward to, I mean, I, I think we'll see all these guys playing some, but, uh, you know, especially for Silva and especially for uh, PJ because, you know, all, also those two teams, I'd be surprised if Miami won the title. I'd be surprised if Denver won the title, but they're kind of in that second tier. It's like probably Milwaukee, L.A., L.A., and then I'd probably say like Toronto, Boston, Denver, Houston, and eh, maybe Miami's in the third tier, but point is they're on relevant teams that are certainly going to be in the playoffs and we're going to get to watch for um, at least a little while longer beyond just the eight games. They are all guaranteed. I guess Cinderia Thormo and the Pelicans being the exception there, but we'll keep checking on checking in on them throughout the course of the hard foul. Colin, I'm so happy that we get to do a, a, a Gamecocks in the NBA segment like Wes and Chris and Will and I get to do Gamecocks in the NFL kinds of segments. It's uh, it's kind of fun to, to follow those guys that we followed here for a while afterwards. 
it's pretty nice, isn't it? And it's it's fun to talk about when we don't have college basketball. We have the NBA to be actually and tell stories about these guys that aren't fifty years older, yeah, you know, right. that played in the seventies to yeah. do it. I mean, these are guys that played two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually been fun because these are guys that I got to cover. So yeah. it's not just like me hearing stories; it's me getting to kind of not experience it with them. Because if I was experiencing them with them, I'd be in a, a nicer <laughs> place and I'd have a nicer car. And, <laughs> But uh, yeah, be in Orlando nice right now. Watch them. Yeah, yeah. best I'd be in Orlando riding Disney World rides. But um, yeah. yeah, it's been nice to kind of keep track of it. A um, couple more things before we get out of here. As I mentioned, a couple social initiatives that Frank Martin has been very involved in this off season. As in addition to fighting COVID nineteen, there has been a fight against racial injustice all around the country. And a couple that I wanted to highlight real quick. Uh, Frank Martin. Uh, has been a part of the McClendon Foundation, which was founded uh, back in 1999. He's been involved for a while, but uh, he and John Calipari and a couple other coaches, and I think Will Muschamp, have recently gotten involved uh, with a new initiative. Uh, Colin, tell us about that and how Frank Martin got involved. Yeah, so it's the McClendon McClendon Foundation, McClendon Minority Leadership Initiative or something like that, Um, and it's designed to help place minorities um, into athletic administration, um, into positions where they can work themselves into athletic director, associate athletic director roles. Um, and it was started by John Calipari and Harvard's Tommy Hamaker. Uh, and they reached out to Frank Martin um, about the idea, and Frank wanted to help um, provide monetarily for it, some like with scholarship money, and obviously be a guy that helps implement, implement some of those initiatives on his campus. And um, Muschamp, he called Frank called Muschamp, um, talked to him about it, and Muschamp was all on board too, um, wanting to get more minorities uh, into athletic administration to where they're making uh, decisions at the you know, campus level, at the university level, at something along those lines. And um, both of those guys have donated to it, donated scholarship money to it, and um, just in, it's a way in talking with Frank and in talking with Will. Um, just about getting more people that look like the the athletes. I mean, the majority of college athletes are African American, are um, are minorities, and getting them into positions where they can help make some change at the university, at the athletic department level. And um, I think it's a pretty noble cause for them, and and something that really does mean a lot to them and to uh, their staffs and the people they coach. And it's a really cool way to approach it too, because you know so often it's. It's the people that are visible. It's the athletes. It's the people that were that were watching on TV and following and recruiting, and uh, like you and I were just talking about following after they leave college. But by and large, those aren't the people that are making the decisions. I'm mean, Frank Martin put it very plainly. You know, head coaches don't hire other head coaches. So it, you know, it's it, from from the players, which is where our focus normally is. You know, we focus even a little bit less on the coaches, and we focus almost none at all about the leadership. And and it, I mean it. It feels silly when I when I was reading about this initiative and listening to you tell me about it, and it's like, oh yeah, like duh, like you need to start at the source to fix some of these issues. You can't just fix it on the ground because this originates somewhere. So I, I appreciate um, again everybody involved, but especially Frank Martin, Will Muschamp, just again as, as guys that have done a tremendous job locally, and for Frank Martin especially on a, on even a larger stage, given the opportunity to to take a hard look at these things and. You know, while while it feels obvious, I mean, clearly it wasn't obvious because this is something that that needed to be done and, and an initiative that need to be made. Um, but I I don't know. I feel silly for not thinking about that until you know the people at the McClendon Foundation sort of brought it to my attention. But I guess that's sort of part of the problem, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and and Frank talked a little bit about it too. He's like, you know, as, as coaches, we always try to um, when we talk to players. We when, when we say their playing days are done, we always try to steer them into coaching. But he goes, why not try to steer them into athletic administration? Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, listen, there are plenty of qualified minority uh, head coaches out there that don't get the same opportunities that white coaches do. And um, always been me personally a big believer that people tend to hire people that look like them. Um, so if you have more minorities in leadership roles, whether that's associate athletic director or provosts or university president athletic directors, they're more likely to hire minority head coaches. Um, and, and and that gives you a little bit more diversity um, at the head coaching level, um, at the university level. Um, and I think diversity is usually a good thing, um, especially when you're dealing with 
sports that are for the most part minority driven um, minorities play them. And um, I just think it's a good thing all around. Um, I think that it's important to get a lot of different viewpoints. And I think you get a lot of that at South Carolina um, with two minority head coaches um, for the leading basketball programs. Um, and Will Muschamp, who's done a really good job um, handling some of the stuff that's gone over, on over the last couple of months. So um, all around, it's just, it's, I think it's just a phenomenal job that they've been, they've been doing um, with this McClendon Foundation. The other initiative with which Frank Martin has been heavily involved, um, I guess we spoke a month or so ago about Frank Martin taking a leadership position with the National Association of Basketball Coaches. Um, I think specifically within that was essentially the Diversity Council to put forth and work on some of the proposals that came out last week, uh, which I don't know what exactly they're calling it, but this is essentially a proposal uh, that in the interest of eliminating a, a test that a lot of people have cited as culturally biased. Uh, Frank Martin is moving and proposing, along with a couple other people that are on this NABC bill, to eliminate the SAT and ACT as sort of a preliminary criterion for college admission. Uh, now, Colin, before we talk a little bit more specifically about this bill, how do you personally feel about the SAT slash ACT? I don't think that it's a good judge of whether someone's college ready or not. Mm. Um just me personally, I mean, I've met people that have gotten high SAT scores that didn't blow me away intelligence-wise and people with lower <laughs> SAT, ACT scores that yeah. did. I mean, it's one of those things where I think that there's so many other valuable metrics to use, whether that's GPA, class rank, course load, extracurriculars, um, personal essays, um, things that, that show intelligence more so than a three-hour test that you take and on a Scantron sheet. Um, and I think that, you know, listen, I am a white guy. Um, I don't deal with a lot of the same things that, you know, African-Americans or minorities in America deal with. And I think if, if Frank and a lot of the guys that are on this panel, on this committee, want to take a look at it and that are minorities, I'm all for it. Um, just because I, I'm going to admit that I don't know everything. Um, and if they feel like it is, I think it's worth a deeper look. I think it's worth, you know, talking about and discussing. And um, if they feel that way, then there's obviously got to be something to it. I know this has been a hot button issue for a while, um, and now that it's coming to light again. And um, I think that even even if it's, you know, you find that the the cultural bias isn't as, as in depth as some people think or some people don't think, that there are still plenty of other ways, even if you get rid of it, to judge whether someone's intelligent or not. That don't have to deal with, again, a scantron sheet three hours on a Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think all that's fair. And um, I, I remember being, uh, so I went to Furman, and they did away with uh, SAT and ACT scores already. This is not a required part of the admission process. And some schools have gone ahead and, and, and done away with it individually, but I guess this would be a more standardized way of approaching it, and I think specifically for athletes. But I remember being incredibly frustrated because Furman – it was. It might have been my freshman year, maybe my sophomore year, but it was basically right after I had started school there. They were like, hey, we're not looking at SAT scores anymore. And I'm like, I'm so glad that I took that stupid thing three times and the ACT. Like, I, I think it would be better for everybody. I've never liked standardized tests. It's just, it's frustrating, and I'm with you. That It's it's not even close to the best way to, it, it's not even a good way to determine which, uh, which individuals are, are ready for college and not. So, uh, you know, selfishly, personally and also just uh, you know understanding and having talked to some more people to have a greater understanding of what it means for a test like that to be culturally biased I am all in favor of this and you know for the for the sake of you know my children and people all around the country I hope they don't have to sit in that room for 25 hours and pack your snacks and take that stupid test where they tell you not to read the passages it's like that's not reading comprehension they're just teaching you to like where to look for the right details. I don't know. I, I hate standardized testing. So, again, personally and also looking at the bigger picture, which is what Frank Martin uh, has been doing, I'm I'm all in favor of, of doing away with those things. Just GPA, extracurriculars. I, I, I like that you said personal essays because I think that part of it, you know, speaks – Speaks maybe more than than anything, including GPA. But you know, what what is your what's your level of self awareness? You know, what what are the things that you want? How do you how do you write? How do you think you can glean so much from reading something that uh that someone's written? Which is um, I, I don't know. I, I think more stock should be taken in those things. And uh, speaking of of understanding people based on how they write, uh, Colin, I, I feel like you're 
Uh, not that your colleagues aren't, but I feel like you're about the most honest writer at Gamecock Central, and that every time I, I read something that you write, it feels like you're just talking to me. You have a nice kind of casual, colloquial style when uh, when that's appropriate, and uh, you got a bunch of good stuff on GamecockCentral.com right now that I would encourage all of you to go read um, because Colin just works tirelessly over there. Um, I guess, I mean, you, I'm sure you're just bored because, like you said, you're sitting in an empty house, so... Why not just turn out, you know, 15 new articles a day? But uh, as we're talking about basketball, you have a good piece that I didn't want to spoil too much of. Um, but if you want to give us a quick teaser, you talked to Jalen McCreary's trainer, and we talked about McCreary. We touched on him earlier just as, a, as an interesting sort of versatile swing 4-5 option for South Carolina. Um, again, people can go read the full piece at GamecockCentral.com, but uh, just give me broadly a little teaser of how your conversation with uh, Jalen McCreary's trainer went. Yeah, I mean – it was, a, it was a great conversation. Um, he, Calvin, was was more than forthcoming about some of the stuff that he's worked on. He was pretty honest about um, what Jalen's been doing to improve. Um, they're working a lot of shot in his ball handling skills, um, which is something that obviously needed a, some improvement going into his sophomore year. But he was honest and kind of talked about reaching his potential and, and kind of the stuff they've been working on and the growth he's seen over the last I want to say about two months that they've been working together. And um, it was one of those things where it was a really, really good conversation and, and something that um, I think a lot of people get good information out of just because it's, it's something we don't normally typically write. Go check that out, GamecockCentral.com, and seriously, everything else that is being published right there right now. It's it's a lot of stuff. It's football. It's football recruiting. It's basketball. It's basketball recruiting and all sorts of good stuff because uh, it's – I mean, that's that's where you need to go. That's that's your hub for all things Gamecock. So check it out, GamecockCentral.com. Follow him on Twitter, at Colin Taylor with a Y. Colin, uh, this is great. Thanks so much. Hope uh, everything's going well in your empty house. And um, hope we can do this again soon. Absolutely. Let's um, let's try to get this done a little bit more now that we actually have basketball to talk about. It's not I know, just right? That's going to be good. You know, tidbits of information, you know? <laughs> yeah, just a little bit to the week out and, like, you know, a hype video here and there. But – We'll be getting back into a more regular schedule here uh, on the hard foul as we get a little bit closer to the basketball season, which fingers crossed. And, uh, you know, I think next week we can talk about what the season might look like, uh, especially as we get a little clearer picture of what the football season is going to look like. I think that will help us draw some conclusions about what the basketball season will look like as well. So with that, rate, review, subscribe to this and everything on the Gamecock Central Podcast Network. And for Colin, I'm Pearson. We'll talk to you next time. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.